Okay, <clears throat> a little bit different. We've got five weeks left uh, on Wednesday night, and so we finished the doctrinal emphasis last week. Now, you'll notice in your uh, Grudem book, if you purchase that, that it moves into some of the confessions at the end, and uh, I really thought seriously about uh, getting into those and discussing them, and, and uh, then I talked myself out of it. Maybe we'll do that at some point in time. Uh, but what we're going to do is, um, I've been asked, about a year ago, I did a, uh, an evangelism class, you know, how to share your faith class. I did it during the day at, at the request of some people, and uh, we had, was anybody in here in that? It was only ladies, really, and we did it like on a, a Tuesday afternoon or Tuesday morning, maybe right before lunch or right after lunch. I can't remember now which, but we did four weeks. Huh? Carrie did it. Carrie did it. Um, Jackie, uh, Karen DeQualo was in there, uh, Shirley Miller. Um, there were about eight or ten ladies that came and participated in that. And uh, it went really well. And I had uh, put as a, an objective or a goal for this year to, to do it again. And... That coincided with being asked uh, by a couple of people uh, who said they had heard about the class from last year and wanted to know if we were going to be offering it again. And so then it was just a matter of sorting out where and when, you know, the logistics of it. And uh, as I began to look at our schedule breaking down, I thought we were going to have three weeks at the end after we finished the, uh, the book. And, uh, but then when I got to looking at it and saw that we actually were going to have five, I guess I had allowed for a couple of weeks of getting off schedule, Paul. So at any rate, it looked to me like it would just be perfect for us to do that um, share your faith class in here the last four weeks. And so that's what I'm going to do. And I got further validation this week because Luke's leaving next week with the Senegal team. And he asked, since he found out we were going to do this, he said it would work out perfect for his students as they get ready for mission trips this summer. One of the things he wants them to do is learn how to share their faith. So he's going to have them come up next Wednesday and participate at least in the first session. Then I'm out the last last Wednesday in May, and so he's going to teach that class in here and bring the students back. And so we'll have four weeks. I'll kick it off. He'll wrap it up. And, uh, and interestingly enough, he'll be preaching on the 26th of May. And his assignment for that week was to preach on evangelism. So you're going to get a, a nice helping of it over the next month. And, uh, and I think it'll be good. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the weeks I'll bring in some resources, show you some things you can be reading. You know, most of us struggle. Uh, just being honest, we all struggle with sharing our faith. We struggle with evangelism. It's not because we're dumb. It's not because we, we don't really know how to share what Christ has done in our lives. And it's not that we don't want to. It, it is a supernatural warfare that goes on, and the enemy knows he wants us to be quiet. He doesn't want us sharing because he doesn't want people coming to Christ. This is the method that God's chosen to use to make Christ known. And so uh, we have 35,000 people within a mile, mile and a half of our church. And you can do the math. We know at least 70% of them, probably 75% of them, are unchurched and therefore lost, probably even a greater percentage than that. That's probably a very um, conservative figure. 
what doesn't work any longer, which going back, David and some others of you, Paul probably can remember, you know, years ago the churches always had an outreach night. You know, when you would show up and you had your deacons and you had your people and you went out and knocked on doors. It just doesn't, it's not effective anymore. And the reason is is not because we can't get people to do it, not because uh, we couldn't share, but people are so private they won't even come to the door. I mean, we were doing faith training here, which is essentially the same thing uh, when I first came here, and we had some success with it. But I had 35, 36 people involved in that from our church every fall and spring. And so we had 12 or 13 teams of three people each that were going out. And we were, on average, the last two semesters, we would see maybe one person come to Christ during the semester. And the problem was we couldn't, we couldn't get connected to people who needed to hear. We basically were visiting people that were maybe checking us out from other churches and already had a relationship uh, but we even found people would just not come to the door they'd be home but just wouldn't come to the door uh, as many of you don't when Jehovah's Witnesses show up or the Mormons you just sit where you are and try to be real quiet and hope they'll go away right and that's what a lot of people do now uh, Michael uh, DeBusk and I talked you know oh, it's been 12 or 13 years ago as we began to realize we weren't we weren't being efficient with the people we had, and, and we weren't really being biblical. The biblical model, the biblical mandate in Scripture is as we go through life to be making disciples, as we're going, as, as you're doing whatever it is you do day by day by day, you're encountering lost people. They, you, they can't avoid you. You know, they can, they can not answer their door, but you're engaging them at the grocery store, at work at the gas station everywhere you go you're engaging lost people you're encountering lost people and so what we have to do is become more proficient at recognizing the opportunity and and rehearsing and being prepared to engage in conversation with them and and begin to share who Christ is to us and it's really not that hard and and more of them than you care to admit are really interested in hearing because we're living in a culture now that has completely changed. How many of you have lived here more than 10 years? Oh, almost all of you. Uh, more than 15? 20? Okay. So most of you know what Crabapple in this surrounding area has been for the last 20, 25, 30 years. I don't know if you've really recognized this or not, but in the last 10 years, this, this culture has turned completely on its head from what it was. It's no longer what it was 15 years ago. Uh, the world has come to our doorstep, and with it has come secularization. Uh, we're not even culturally Christian anymore here, you know, in this area. We're not. 15, 20 years ago, we were culturally Christian. That meant that people went to church because that's what the culture required you to do. If you moved into the area, the first thing you did was find a church to attend. Now when people come in, church never crosses their radar never unless you're already attending somewhere else when you come here people that move in here they're coming from all parts of the world parts of this country they're not thinking about church when they move into the area okay um, so we have to be a little bit more 
proactive in the way we go about our business. We can't expect them just to show up on Sunday and come in our church and sit down and check us out. A few do, but they're the ones that are coming from other churches. The lost people aren't. They, they're not even given, they're, we're not even a blip on their radar. The only way that we're going to have an audience with them is if we engage them as we go daily through life. Okay? One of the things that's coming later this year uh, at the end of the summer is called Who's Your One? And basically, this is a—it's it, going to be a challenge for each of us to identify one person, one person that you be with, that you know is lost, that you are pretty sure is lost, that you'd be willing to pray for, and with the idea that you're going to try to find a way over the course of this, the coming weeks and months, as you pray for this person. For their salvation that you would put yourself in the place of maybe trying to share with them okay if every one of us did that with one right there's 200 of us in the church and we all committed to do that what do you think would happen that's not what would happen <laughs> unless that's the way we engage them God's going to honor that he really is uh, you'd, be so, you'd be amazed. What we have to do is change the culture inside of our church, okay? And that means that we've got to start thinking more externally than internally. We've got to start thinking about this community. Listen, there, I hadn't planned to talk about this, but why not? Um, our, our culture right now, some of you have kept up with this, I know. I don't know if this is accurate, you know, but it's pretty close. You you know that we're we're known as the heroin triangle. I mean, have you seen those articles mm -hmm. in the AJC? And I mean, this has been going on for some time now. And uh, heroin is cheap in this area. It it is uh, uh, it is a popular drug among not only young people but young people's parents but we have we have an interesting phenomenon most of you probably grew up in a household where you had parents and children that's not the way our culture is shaped now we have friends parents who are friends and buddies with their children that are friends and buddies they get high together you know, you don't have parents saying, don't do that in my house. You can't do that in my house. Don't bring that stuff in here. They're saying, hey, come on, we're going we're gonna to party. This, this is coming straight from school principals and teachers that, that we've been interacting with and the ministries opening up across the street. This has actually even grown further, coming and even gainsful. So this thing's spreading. And, you know, we're seeing all these, uh, these fatalities among our teenagers, overdosing and things like that. This is where it's coming from. We are the most affluent zip code in Georgia and probably one of the most affluent in the entire United States. And for our culture doesn't acknowledge that there's a problem here. We're in denial. We got money. We got achievement. 
We're doubling down on all these things. Our kids are going to Harvard, they're going to Yale, they're going to UGA, they're getting degrees and graduate degrees and they're driving fancy cars and life is good, but it's really not, you know. We're in bondage, you know, to, these, to this thing and our community looks like it's a, a wonderful community, but it's on fire. It's burning and nobody, nobody's saying fire. And that's our job as a church. We've got the only water hose in town that's going to effectively put it out. Anything else that comes is just gasoline. Mm -hmm. We've got the water hose. And we have, we have to figure out how to engage our culture and begin to, the gospel's the only hope it's got. Now, the frustrating thing has been for me is that the culture looks around and goes, hey, I don't need you. We got, I got everything. I got the world by the tail on a downhill drag, Right. So how do you convince somebody that thinks they've got everything that they don't have everything, that they really have nothing? Well, you and I can't. God's the only one that, that can do this. And, and so the, the task for us begins, as I was saying Sunday, it's got to begin with us on our knees in, in, a, in a spirit of desperation of saying, God, we've got big issues right here and we've got no strategy, no plan, no, no way of figuring out how to do this. You're the one that's got to do it. You got to open up the minds and the hearts of the people in the community, and you got to you got to equip us and and use us however you see fit to take the gospel. But we're it. Look around. Where's the next church you see? You know, I mean, there's some scattered around in some of these other areas, but you know, we we got our our place right in here, and. And these families are looking everywhere else for... They're looking for everything else and everywhere else. These kids are taking all kinds of medications and suffering from depression and suffering from anxiety. Suffering from, I mean, if you could just hear we are stories. We are over-medicated. Right here from 15 years. It's not just heroin, but it's prescription uh -huh. painkillers. Uh -huh. They take things to go to sleep. They take things to function during the day. They take things to, I mean, you just would not believe. And we're talking about a tender age like that. I mean, you know, can you imagine um, at, at 15, 16, having to take things to help you go to sleep? And um, I think there's a lot more openness than, than we can imagine. And one of the things that we're guilty of very often is we alienate ourselves from the community. We we withdraw because we think they don't want what we have or they've already made up their minds. And, you know, we've been trying to move in a different direction here or an aggressive and positive direction here at this church for the last few years. You know, working with the city, trying to get more involved with them, the schools, God's opened up some opportunities. But, but it's going to take more. You know, we've got to turn into foot soldiers as we go through life. That's where we can really multiply, you know. Six guys go, you know, or five guys go a few times a month and meet with a young man on the school campus. That's a great thing, and it, it has a, a benefit, but it can't be the end all to be all. Some of us go to Northwestern Middle School, you know, every Tuesday and spend time over there at lunch with those kids and interact with them. And, and you know, it's a blast, but it's limited. It's just a short period of time, and the conversations Unless they bring up things, you have to be a little bit guarded about what you can say. But as we're going through life out here in the general public, 
we, we have every, every reason, every opportunity. We should have every reason to want to share with them the hope that's in us. Isn't that what Peter says? Be ready to give, give a reason for the hope that, that is in us. So who's your ones a part of that? Going through, preparing, you know, learning how to share your, your uh, faith. It's not complicated. It's not hard. It's just a matter of getting in the habit. So, you know, investing in some resources, a book or two here and there that might provide a little bit of inspiration, a little bit of motivation for us uh, to overcome some of our fears and trepidations about it, you know. Uh, so that's what this will be about. That's what we're going to be trying to do. And um, so that's, that's where that's coming from. Long introduction there. Uh, so next week. Don't miss next week. All right, we'll get started. And you know, you may have wondered how what's my how's my what's my testimony got to do with it? Well, you're going to find out as we walk through this. We're going to talk about those things and how you can use your testimony, how you shouldn't use your testimony, how to get familiar with your testimony, you know, how to be able to share it quickly, those kind of things, and um, and get familiar with some other tools. You know, you see. Uh, uh, around the church, you may see some tracks like uh, Two Ways to Live. You know, we'll talk about some of those and how you should use a track uh, if you use that uh, route for somebody. Any questions about that? So that takes us through May, and then we'll have our, you know, a normal summer break, and we'll reconvene in August. And um, I can't tell you what that's about yet. It's top secret. Tonight, <clears throat> this is kind of a little bridge, but I wanted to kind of thinking about finishing up the doctrinal study and why it was important. And I really appreciated some of you have mentioned to me how much you uh, felt like you've learned and grown uh, by going through um, Grudem's uh, Bible doctrine. And uh, I thought it was good. It's hard to believe that we did it, right? So if you read a chapter each week as we were doing that, you read that book. That's pretty cool. Uh, if you didn't read it all, you can go back and read some of those sections. And the, um, the teaching is on our website. So if you missed weeks or you missed topics or things you want to go back and listen to them, you can go to our website to um, visit the, along the top row there, the, the buttons. One of them says visit. And it'll pull down. It'll say Sunday or Wednesday. Click on Wednesday. And you'll have the, the uh, meal menu and then you'll have uh, something about the Bible study. If you missed the Bible study, click here. And you click there, and it'll, it'll take you to a, a list of the, the weekly teachings. Uh, we've been recording them and putting them up there. So they're available for you to go back and review anything that you want to. Uh, but tonight I wanted to think about Hebrews 12, chapter 1 and 2 uh, as kind of a bridge uh, for the two. You know, talking about running the race running the race of faith. And uh, how many of you remember the name Roberto Duran? Anybody remember that? He was in the Duran Duran band, right? <laughs> no, that's it. Roberto Duran was a, uh, a former boxer from Panama, and he's generally regarded as the greatest lightweight uh, ever. He won four titles, uh, four different weight class titles, in fact. Uh, during his time. Um, many people consider him pound for pound one of the top five boxers of all time. Uh, but the thing that, you know, it's a shame because a guy that's renowned to be such a great uh, boxer or be gr so great at his craft 
is actually most renowned for something that happened. Uh, he fought uh, a guy named Sugar Ray Leonard. You may know that name. A little bit more flamboyant, well-known, Olympian, Olympian, I guess, in 1976, something like that, Olympics. But uh, Leonard and, and uh, Duran were in the same weight class, and they fought in June of 1980, and Duran won uh, the fight. His nickname was Hands of Stone. And uh, he was just very expressionless and just went methodically about his business. Leonard, nobody had touched him. I don't know if he'd ever lost uh, to that point, but uh, Duran took him out behind the woodshed. Well, they scheduled a rematch for November of that year, and, um, and they were fighting in an eighth round, and Leonard was holding his own and, and doing pretty well. But in the eighth round, suddenly Duran just turned around and walked to his corner and told his corner, no mas, no mas, which is Spanish for no more. And uh, the referee said, are, are you sure that's what you want? And he said, no mas. So, I mean, here's a guy that's on top of his sport. He's invested all this training. All this stuff is, is coming together at the same point. Um, had every reason to keep going, and he just quit. He just walked away and quit. You know there was a lot of money at stake, um, I don't know how all that washed out, but it was a, it was a pretty bizarre uh, circumstance. And I don't know that anybody, I didn't do a lot of research on this, but I don't know that anybody ever did a follow-up to say why, you know, if he even told anybody why, other than he just had enough. He was just done. Well, Hebrews is a letter that was written for the Hebrew people who professed Christ. These were people, Jewish people, that heard about Christ, believed or almost believed, if we can say it that way. Maybe they didn't, they weren't, they weren't really genuinely converted, but they heard it and they believed enough to get right up to the doorstep. And the problem that they had was for a Jew to hear about Christ and believe He's the Messiah. He's a different kind of Messiah than, than they anticipated. And if you were a Jew, you were a committed Jew, religious Jew then your life was dominated by things like ritual sacrifice, laws, food laws, things that you had to do. The law dominated your life. That was what your life was all about. And so when these people came to Christ and they were told, you no longer need to do that. You don't need to sacrifice anymore. You don't need to do that. Christ has completed this. And so to begin to think you wanted to follow Christ... But every day, you're living in Jerusalem, and every day you hear the call, you know, to um, the temple. You hear um, all the sounds that go with the ritualistic uh, observances. You smell the air and the, the burning of sacrifices and things like that. And you know how that is, right? I mean, how many of you can go to the theater and, and not eat popcorn? You know how association works, right? So you can imagine if you've seen and done this all your life, as they got exposed to that again, they began to be pulled back to the things that were familiar, the things that were comfortable, and, and, and abandoned following Christ. Quit. To say, no moss. I don't want to do this anymore. And that's, that's why Hebrews was written. It was written to these people to say, 
Don't turn back. Don't give up now. Don't abandon. You need to stay the course. You need to persevere in the faith. Um, I mean, in fact, that would be the theme if I were going to give it one. If you look in, in Hebrews 10.39, you find kind of a uh, central key theme, I think, for the book that says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So we stay, we stay at it. We don't quit. We don't fall back. Following this statement, <clears throat> if you uh, look down to verse 1 of chapter 11, you have what? You have the biblical definition of faith. Okay, we don't shrink back. Why? Because we walk by faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then chapter 11 unfolds all of this. I call it the hall of fame of faith because you've got all these people described who we know from reading the scriptures demonstrated a faith and a commitment to Christ, even to losing their lives, you know, being martyred for their faith. And so if you're thinking about backing up, giving up, turning and going in another direction. He goes through this, this uh, long list of people that should inspire you to say, look, look what they did. Look how they surrendered their life and committed their life to this. Don't, don't turn back. And then you come to chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2, and you read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also... Lay aside every weight and every and in sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he reminds them about running this race and and facing the temptation to quit. Uh, but staying the course, you know. Uh, we all face this temptation at some point in time in our lives. You don't have to be a Jew living in Jerusalem and dealing with all these things. Uh, we all face that from time to time, right? Uh, there are things that come across your plate that, you know, take you back to a time before you knew Christ or before you were following Christ. And, and there's a, in that moment something that pulls you toward it or encourages you to you at least think about it. Those were good days, or that was a good time, or something of that nature. Sometimes in our lives today, we run into things that are adverse to us following Christ. And, and that makes us consider just giving up, just cashing in, walking away from it, doing anything else. So these verses speak powerfully uh, to the challenge. And there, there are two or three things that uh, we can kind of take away from them that I think offer encouragement and challenge. The first one is that the Christian life is intended, and it is, a disciplined life. It must be a disciplined life. In order to run the race, we must lay aside certain things, is what he tells us. Let us also lay aside. First, the text says, lay aside every weight. Um, somebody got a translation that says, every encumbrance? Yeah, okay. So, lay aside every weight or every incur uh, encumbrance. You know, I enjoy getting out and taking a walk um, for exercise. And I'm not as faithful at it as I used to be. But, uh, you know, when you go out, you don't, I'm one of these guys that I want, to, 
I'm a minimalist, you know. I just want the socks and the sneakers and the shorts and the t-shirt and the cap. Maybe sunglasses. That's it, right? Uh, everything else. Watch, wedding band, you know, everything else comes off. Um, you know, get as light as you can. But occasionally you get rained on, you know. You get out away from everything. You can't get back. And you've been through those things where you get wet and, and those things get, your clothes get wet. And, you know, I'm a cotton kind of guy. I don't like these um, thin things that they, what? What is it? Dry quick? Isn't that what a dryer is? Dry fit. Dry fit. I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna qualify that. Yeah, please don't. Don't help me, Linda. You know, cotton, I love cotton, I love the feel of cotton, but cotton when it gets wet, what happens? It gets it stays wet and it gets heavy. You know, it traps the water, the moisture inside and stays heavy. So you get on a rainstorm, and by the time you get done, you know, the, the hems of your shorts can be dragging your ankles, you know, because it stretches. And, and your t-shirt, you know, is hanging down, and your ball cap's all wet, and, and you're carrying that extra weight, right? Uh, I've, I've been hiking with Ken. He was just telling me about going hiking the other day. And I, was, I had to remind myself, uh, the last time we went on the Appalachian Trail, he had one of those... Uh, big packs that look like it weighed about 100 pounds. Uh, he told me it just weighed 27, but um, I don't know about that. I'm not sure. But, you know, to carry that kind of weight around, you know, you may do it for training purposes, but even that, it gets a little cumbersome after a while. It gets hard to carry it, doesn't it? It's hard to function. And you just want to get rid of that stuff and get light again. And that's kind of what he's saying here. There are good things in life, things that are not bad, uh, hobbies, recreation, entertainment, uh, family, all these kind of things that are good things in life, but if we're not careful, they can become a weight, they can become an encumbrance in our spiritual walk, can they not? If they begin to move Christ off the throne and take the throne of your life, they become an encumbrance. And they're no longer beneficial to you, but harmful to your spiritual walk. And that's what he's saying. Lay aside those things. Put those things aside so that you're, you're not weighted down with these encumbrances. He says also that um, you should lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. Things that wrap around our legs and our feet causing us to stumble and fall down. Romans 13, 12 says, The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Have you ever seen someone run a race wearing leg irons? I mean, you may have seen a movie where a, a prisoner has escaped from the chain gang and, and he's, got, he's got leg irons on, right? And he doesn't run very well, does he? But you've never seen anybody line up at the Olympics to run the 100-meter dash with leg irons on. That'd be crazy, wouldn't it? Um, sin turns us into runners who try to compete while, while wearing leg irons. Sin keeps us from God's desires and plans. It slows us down, hinders us. Ultimately, it causes us to stumble and fall and, and maybe even give up and quit. 
So he says, lay aside these things. Lay aside the weight. Lay aside the things which cling so closely. The things that entangle us, which is sin and causes us to stumble and fall. Uh, let's consider an example from the scriptures. We all know the story of David in 2 Samuel 11. Scripture says there in verse 1, it was the time when kings go out and lead their troops in battle and David wasn't with his troops. He was on the palace rooftop whiling away the hours, I meandering around and he saw Bathsheba and he coveted her. He, he lusted after her and you know how the story unpacks. It's a terrible tragedy. This is something that entangled him. But it didn't just stop there. Even though we know that David repented and we know that God used David again, David was continually entangled by this sin. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, Nathan confronts David and he says to him in 2 Samuel 12 verse 9, he says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Nathan then proceeds to unpack various repercussions awaiting David due to his sin. This is what he says. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the, in the sight of the sun. In verse 14 of the same chapter, the Lord said to David, The child that Bathsheba is going to bear, the child who is born to you shall die. Uh, the takeaway here is that David's suffering and shame resulted from sin that entangled him because of, you know, he didn't lay it aside. He, he not only engaged in it, but then he doubled down on it. And, and it continued to, to suffocate him. And even after he repented and God restored, forgave, he still dealt with the consequences of that sin, which continued to entangle him. Really what I wanted to focus on though is if you think about Psalm 51, we read David's confession and repentance that came after this. Some Bible historians will say that, that David was a really uh, bitter and angry guy for a year because he was living with this, this adultery and the murder that he used to cover it up. And the guilt of it all was, was eating him up. And when Nathan confronted him and David was broken, he was, he was ready and ripe to be broken. And, and uh, Psalm 51 is what resulted of that as David penned the psalm uh, as a prayer of confession and repentance to God for his sin. But I want to give you some of the highlights from that prayer because uh, I think it helps us understand the sin and how it entangled David uh, even, even during that time between committing it and, uh, and, the, and the writing of Psalm 51. This is what he said. Here's some of the things he said. My sin is ever before me. Every day, in every way you can imagine, David's mind continued to replay the sin and his failure. I sinned and, and, done what is, and have done what is evil in your sight. He says, God is blameless in his judgment of me. So He's, he's admitting that he's right to judge me. Purge me, he says, with hyssop, and I shall be clean, which implies that I'm currently unclean, right? I shall be whiter than snow, currently implying that I'm unrighteous and dirty. Renew a right spirit within me. Currently, my spirit's not right. My spirit's not what it's supposed to be. Cast me, uh, cast me now away from your presence. 
<coughs> cast me not away from your presence. Uh, the fear that he was going to be separated from God, maybe forever because of what he had done. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Telling us that you know, where he was, he was joyless. He lost his gladness of heart. Uphold me with a willing spirit. All these things were a part of David's life. And we know that that's not the only occasion. Uh, there were others in Scripture that had to do the same thing, had to learn some hard lessons. David's just happens to be an easy one to pick on because it's so powerful. So the Christian life is a life of discipline. It must be discipline. The Christian life is also a life that is to be a determined life. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run is not difficult to understand. We know what it means to, to take off and run. It means to move quickly, the urgency with purpose toward a goal. Conveys the idea of moving with intensity to get to the objective as fast as possible. It refers to exerting yourself to strive hard after a goal. It's a voluntary action. God doesn't coerce it. God doesn't coerce it. He could, but He doesn't. He will exhort, He will challenge, but He will not coerce uh, coerce the action normally. Let us run with endurance. Endurance means to, to take up the running with patience, with long-suffering, and with perseverance under all kinds of misfortunes and trials. So we run with endurance. We are committed to run without stopping, without being deterred. You know, uh, if you watch football, you know, we all admire the running back that just won't go down, you know, that just continues to go with endurance, even though he's got tacklers hanging all over him. And that's the picture that you have here uh, for the believer. Thank you, James. This is the call for the Christ follower. Christians are set apart to run this kind of race. This is the reason that Jesus told us that we should count the cost before we choose to follow Him. That it's not going to be easy. It's not a stroll through a rose garden. Uh, it's not a sprint that's over quickly, but it's a marathon that requires stamina and commitment. Now, it does not mean that you have to muster up the stamina. It means that Christ will supply the stamina uh, if we lean into Him, if we trust in Him. He will, he will provide for us what we need, but we're available and engaging in this uh, uh, commitment to be determined to persevere with Him. Let us run with endurance the race. The race. We get this word <clears throat> that is translated as race is the same uh, place we get our word agony. He says, let us run the agony. That's what he's saying. Let us run the agony. You know, you remember the old sports uh, world, wide world of sports commercial, the agony, uh, the, the, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I never did believe that was right because even in victory there's agony. You know, you watch the faces of, of these highly trained athletes that are competing in the Olympics or something, you know, running the race, and they've invested years to prepare and train, and they finally get their moment, and, and everything in their body is straining for the finish line to accomplish the goal they set out, the dream that they sought out to fulfill, and you can see the agony written all over their body, right? The muscles are straining, and the faces are contorted, and, and they're laboring to breathe, and they're sweating, and they're trying to, trying to get across that finish line. 
He says we run the race with endurance. We run with endurance the agony. That's the description of the Christian life. It's an agony. It's not. It's not. You know, a, a, a cool boat ride across the lake, is it? It's not what it's designed to be. Jerry, about seventy pounds ago, I used to run a lot of half marathons, and we used to have a saying that if you were still standing and breathing on your own, not pluck, puking your guts out. Really <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can remember uh, one of the players on a basketball team that I was on once upon a time got, got in trouble. He did something. And, you know, back in those days, the coach called us all together, told us what had happened. We had a big game the next day, tournament championship game. And he said, you know, this is what your teammate has done. And uh, you guys can do whatever you want to. But he and I are going to be out on the gym floor doing wind sprints. Well, after he walked out, <clears throat> a couple of the guys on the team said, I wasn't one of them, said, fellas, we're a team. We've got to go run with him. And I'm going. Because <laughs> what he had done was really stupid, and it was a selfish act. But we did. We went out and ran. I've never ran so much in all my life. And we really literally had trash cans around the court that we were puking in after we ran. And, and you know, what was uh, interesting is I was – pretty good friends with the coach I rode back and forth with him and we didn't talk about it much we lost the game the next day like by four points we couldn't even shoot because we couldn't jump and I remember several months later talking to him about it and and I said you know I don't know if I'll ever forgive you for that and he said why me he said I couldn't believe y'all came out run with him why did you do that I'm thinking man couple of loud mouths, you know, that were trying to play whatever. Uh, anyway. <clears throat> um, so this analogy of an agony, a, a race, you know, it's, it's no different than a mother in childbirth or a soldier in combat. The, the pressing forward to the finish, you know, it's a great labor and a cost uh, involved. And this is the picture of the Christian life. Uh, it's not one that we carve out for ourselves. A few years ago, or oh, it says that this is the path, this is the final part of the statement that is set before us. This is the, the path or race that God has prescribed for us, uh, not that we, that we plan for ourselves. A few years ago, NCAA Cross Country Championship was in California, and 123 of the 128 runners missed a turn. 123 out of 128 uh, NCAA National Championship in cross country. 123 of 128 missed a turn. One competitor, his name was Mike uh, Del Cabo, stayed on the 10,000 meter course and began waving for fellow runners to follow him. Uh, Del Cabo was able to convince only four other runners to go with him. After the race, uh, someone asked him about his competitors and what they thought of his mid-race decision not to follow the crowd. He responded by saying they thought it was funny that I went the right way. He ran the right way and <clears throat> and four others with him and the other 123 went the wrong way and didn't even finish the race correctly. So he ran the right way. We need to run the right way. And it's the way that God has set before us, uh, the race that he set before us. Finally, the Christian life is a devoted life. He says fixing our eyes on Jesus. The word for fixing uh, is the word aforo, and it means, uh, it only occurs here. It literally means to turn the eyes away from everything else and set them upon one particular thing. Not looking, you know, if you have blinders 
and you were focused in on one particular thing, not looking at anything else. We're not looking at the other runners or the other distractions along the way. We're not gazing into the stands as we run. It's kind of hard to run that way, isn't it? My oldest grandson, he never crawled. <clears throat> he went straight to walking, and he didn't really walk long. He went straight to running. And, and I've just been amazed at him because everywhere he goes, he runs. He's just running, 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 running. And my wife says, he runs pretty, doesn't he? I said, I don't know, but he runs a lot. And he just loves to run. He, he's always got to be running. But one thing I noticed when he was little, I don't know if he does it so much anymore, but when he was running, if he went by a window or something where his reflection was in it, he had to watch himself run. And if there was no window, he'd look at his shadow. He's looking, he's looking at all these things. That's not the way you run, is it? You can't do that and be successful as a runner. You're going to have an accident. You're going to run into something else or you're going to stumble and fall. But he wanted to admire himself running. He liked that. And sometimes that's the way we do in the world. We fall in love with watching ourselves run this race, this life, and we're not keeping our eyes focused upon Christ. And it leads to a lot of tragedy and difficulty in our lives. Our culture is me-centric uh, anyway. And um, he says, as believers, we must keep our eyes on Jesus to run this race effectively. He's the author of our faith. He's the model for our faith. He's the enabler for our faith. He's the finisher of our faith. And the Christian life is the only race where everyone can win. And it's not won by having the fastest time. It's won by completing the course according to how God has established it and set it before us. I want to read these verses from the Amplified Translation as we wrap up. This is what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who by faith have testified to the truth of God's absolute faithfulness, stripping off every unnecessary weight and the sin which so easily and cleverly entangles us, let us run with endurance and active persistence the race that is set before us. Looking away from all that will distract us and focusing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, the first incentive for our belief and the one who brings our faith to maturity, who for the joy of accomplishing the goal set before him endured the cross, disregarding the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, revealing his deity, his authority, and the completion of his work. Just consider and meditate on him who endured from sinners such bitter hostility against himself. Consider it all in comparison with your trials, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's a pretty good, pretty good motto to try to live your Christian life. If you just focused on those three verses, you probably could do pretty well, what do you think? Any questions? Comments? Cheap remarks? Why is everybody looking at me? <laughs>